You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. So you have another opportunity to guess what our theme is. Today we are talking about the 2010 film starring Brendan Fraser, Carrie Russell, and Harrison Ford. It's called Extraordinary Measures. It's called Extraordinary Measures. Measures? Yeah, I felt like I said majors. And majors? Did, yeah, that's all right. Measures? Yeah. In addition to those folks, it also stars Alan Ruck, D. Wallace, I guess she dropped the stone yeah. from ETA, and um, Courtney B. Vance, who I enjoy. The DP was Andrew Dunn, and we know him from Precious in 2009. Our formerly talked about Crazy Stupid Love from 2011. And then Whoa. he also did Perks of a Wallflower in, tw- in 2012. The director is Tom Vaughn. And he is known for What Happens in Vegas from 2008 and, a, and quite a few TV series. So he moved to TV. Let's see. There were many, many, many filming locations. And the writer for this film was Robert Nelson Jacobs. And he did one of our favorite movies well at least mine and my mom from our children's childhood 2000 dinosaur oh aladar yes oh he wrote that so i have i have mad love for this this writer huh (laughs) i i don't think i responded to dinosaur quite the same way that you did well listeners if you want to know the funny story why it's special to my mom and i uh, DM me something and I'll do like an extra or something, but I don't want to hijack <laughs> this one. But oh my gosh, when I saw that, I was like a dinosaur. Okay. Uh, and he also did in 2000, a chocolate. Chocolate? Yes. That's referenced in uh, 2022 Spirited with Ryan Reynolds. You're right. And, you're right. And, yes. And Will Ferrell. And then Gita Anand wrote the book that this film is based on. And the studio that produced this is CBS Films and Dubber, Double Feature Films. Let's see. The synopsis for this film is inspired by two events, a drama centered on the efforts of John and Eileen Crowley to find a researcher who might have a cure for their two children's rare genetic disorder, Pompeii disease. And the tagline for this one is don't hope for a miracle, make one. Huh. I, I think that's a fine tagline for the Pompeii disease foundation. But for the film, I don't know if it works as well. It's telling me, the viewer, what I'm in for. Really? But yeah. <laughs> to me, this totally encapsulates the movie. Like, they didn't just sit back and hope for a miracle. They were actively involved in making a miracle happen. See, I would go with something more like, don't be nice, be smart. <laughs> right? That's what, that tells you more what you're it getting. It doesn't tell me anything about the movie. Have you seen for Harrison Ford? <laughs> He's angry throughout the entire film. He is angry throughout the whole film. And he even said that this researcher, he he made a distinction that the researcher had social cue issues as well as he was a grouchy man. So Mm -hmm. he wasn't a grouchy man. The the part he was portraying was. Well, I've also seen Harrison Ford in Star Wars and in Shrinking on Apple TV with Jason Segel. So... I'm going to say there might be a little inherent grumpiness there. But you have not seen... Yeah, go ahead and find a happy Harrison Ford film. There is one, because... Is it the Anne Hayes rom-com? I don't 
think so. I thought there was one. Doesn't he play the president in something? Oh, yeah. I, I think it's called Air Force One, isn't it? So maybe it's not that one. I thought For executive he... decision. Okay. It's one of those. He definitely plays the United States president on a hijacked plane kind of thing. Right. But I was going to say the American president, but that's Warren Beatty. No, it's not I Dave. I feel like... No, 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 no. <laughs> Kevin Klein, happy. Harrison Ford, maybe not as happy. Okay, I am going to look back through his oeuvre, okay. and I'm going to find one. And Harrison, you're welcome to come on the show and school me <laughs> on all of the happy, upbeat parts you've played. Listeners, help me out. I feel like there has to be one. <laughs> okay, a little trivia, though. His dedication to acting, he flew to Amicus Therapeutics, which is the name of the company that John Crowley established to to support the research that that Dr. Stonehill and I'm going to do a little aside here. Dr. Stonehill was an amalgam of a bunch of researchers. There was no Dr. Stonehill in reality. Hollywood kind of, as they do, pushed a bunch of people together anyway. okay, but I do want to take a brief aside on that, though. I don't actually blame Hollywood for that because you have a limited yes. amount of time and attention for the audience. And it would actually be very confusing if there were eight different characters. Right. No, they said that's why they did it. I mean, Hollywood does that all right. the time. I dislike some of the things Hollywood does. That one I understand. <laughs> yeah. Interruption to our inter my interruption. <laughs> Harrison Blue. Um, and he studied with the researchers. He, he took biology 101. He said, you know, the gentleman said in a conference room, he sat there and learned all about you know, not only how the body works and, and how proteins work and different things, but he also then went into the lab and he performed some experiments to learn what it was like to be in a lab and to perform certain tests. So I love it when the actors like immerse themselves into the, you know, lifestyle of the character they're portraying. Right. One of the things that I think we've encountered recently is when people will mispronounce place names. And if you're of that place, it, it immediately takes you out of the film. So I would presume there were some biological terms that Ford learned to say correctly with the right emphasis and, and speed so that it felt not like he was reading something, but that it was something he knew. So credit to him because it did come across when his role as Stonehill that he knew his stuff. Mm -hmm. That didn't bump me. So credit to him. Yes. So I've, I've hijacked my, your time and we need to get into <laughs> to the meat of it. Share with us the pickup line for this film. Well, I, I'm going to put a footnote here because you do hear some dialogue because he, uh, they're moving through kind of an office. But the actual first real clear line of actual delivered dialogue is, it's my job to market this drug for Bristol Myers. So remind me, we just watched this like two days ago. I can't remember the first scene. So this is um, Crowley, played by Brendan Fraser. He's in his office, and they're uh, establishing that he is a dedicated father trying to keep hold down a business. And then we also see Carrie Russell in the hospital with their son, who has Pompeii, and I mean, you know, the opening five minutes is very upbeat. It is a big old shot fake, because if you go off those first five minutes, this is a happy film, which I should have known would be not true if Harrison Ford was in it. Anyway. You're right, because I remember the music, because I yeah. thought I when I picked this, 
I thought it was like more of a thriller, kind of like a chase. Oh, like The Fugitive. I I wonder if I I saw Harrison Ford and thought, oh, this is like The Fugitive. Yeah, yeah, he was happy in that because too, I'm I feel sure. like the trailer had a lot of like running or something. I don't know. Mm, yeah, sounds like so, Fugitive. So the music that accompanied those first scenes because. It's Brendan at work and somebody brings him or we see in his office like a pink toy car like right. in a big box. Yeah. Barbie's dream Corvette. Yes. And then we like his assistant gives him the paper and then we we're cross cutting to Carrie Russell who's talking about getting the party ready and you, somebody brings balloons in and right. And it right. has very happy almost like Mrs. Doubtfire opening music. Oh. Very happy music. <laughs> and so I look at you and I was like, wait a second. This isn't the film that you told me. we." Because then you said, no, this is a film about a child who's dying in the family. It's very right. Lorenzo's oil. And so I was like, wait, this tone of this opening scene does not match what it you did told me. not. <laughs> and like I said, it's a big old shot fake. Uh, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, I don't think it, I would be comfortable as a director doing that to my audience. I wonder. Okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Sure. Is there a case to be made? The rest of this movie is going to be a giant bummer. Let's not let them like sit in this for the whole film. I could, I mean, that, that could be one line of thought. <laughs> My thinking would be the people who want to see this want to kick in the crotch. So I'm just going to start hard and just get worse. Well, it didn't. I mean, it, it definitely didn't leave us in that place for very long because then we <laughs> no, go to the, we go to the party and they put a, a big eight on her cake oh, and yeah. she in a wheelchair awesome. with a tube coming out of her throat. She, you know, I don't even think she can blow out her candles. I think her dad, doesn't her dad do it? I think so. Yeah. Cause they have diaphragm issues. We're, we're told later in the yes. film. So we see that she just turned eight. That later that night, we see him in his study and he is looking and we get to see his notes. And I oh, love it because. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> make sure the notes, because I put this down in the show don't tell category. But... Yeah. So I liked it because we get to see like and and then in case. Oh, we see that the average lifespan of a child with Pompeii disease is nine. He highlights it with a yellow he, highlighter he hi so the audience will not miss that. Cut to, just in case you guys didn't remember the cake yeah, with the eight yeah, on it. Yeah. We cut to a picture of him and his daughter with the candle from the birthday party you in front of the frame. Right up in front of it. Because <laughs> every parent brings home. This is the childhood disease version of the dollar sign on the bag of money from the bank. <laughs> It was so awesome. Kick Brady's dad in the nuts. I mean, it was so just crushing when you see that eight candle right after you see nine years, it cuts to the birthday party with the eight candle and you know the clock is ticking on, on that little girl. So then cut to like a yellow legal pad with all kinds of notes. So this dad he doesn't just dabble in like research. He is crossing every T and dotting every I. He is exhausting every resource. And I love, I've never written this down in my notes, but it said, called doctor many times and left a message right. with like no answer or something. I was like, I never write myself a note like that, but it definitely told the audience that he is you know, dogged in his yeah, search of the obsessive. researcher. Yeah. So in that case, it was very Lorenzo's oil. 
and this is not to criticize Crowley the person because Absolutely. just so that the the viewers hopefully feel a little bit better. Like this is in fact based on it's pretty accurate in the sense that they did come up with a, a, a treatment for this. And it's crushing though, because they call these orphan diseases. They mention the line in the film, but don't explain it. Mm. But I looked it up and they say, basically that's the term for something that has so few affected people that no one wants to make a drug for it. Oh, wow. Just because they, they'll never get the money back. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Totally. But they show us that John is a good dad. And even after a full day of work and research, he tucks the kids in, you know, he reads them stories. It's really sweet. And then there's kind of, I think this was supposed to bring a little bit of levity <laughs> and kind of. Wondering if you're talking about what I'm talking about. <laughs> an insight into these families' lives that it's not simply the the horrificness that two of your children have this disease, but then what, how does that impact the rest of your life? So. The day nurse, the night nurse leaves. <laughs> you are talking about what I thought you were talking about. <laughs> and Carrie Russell comes down and she's just being a sweet wife at first. I don't think that was her intentions, <laughs> although she's thinking like, huh, we're never alone. And we kind of are right now. So they start to get busy on the couch. Or Boom, just, chicka, wow, wow. Yeah. And the day nurse had to arrive early that day. Right. Uh, so I, I made note that you don't see the old coitus interruptus no. gag very often, but I would think as a nurse who lives in someone's house, you're inured to all of that. Oh, right? yeah. You're just, you're so used to being, I mean, nurses in general are used to seeing people with no clothes on and in very unflattering positions. So it's probably just like, oh, hi. Yeah. Keep it up. Right. See yeah. you later. I'm going to go make the spaghetti. So, but it was an interesting, that I definitely could see the director saying this movie is really be, like hard. <laughs> it's, it's depressing. Yeah, we got We're going to throw a little ha-ha humor in there. But also it, it, it informs the audience as to these people have no privacy. There's not a moment of the day that there's not, quote unquote, a stranger in their house, like not a family member. And that would affect- huh. The family. I mean, I'm sure those people become, I mean, not to dog on nurses at all, but you know what I mean? Like sometimes when somebody is in your home, sometimes you just want it to be your family. Right. I, I saw it more as just that it was a 24 hour a day job taking care of their kids. Yeah. Right? And in there, they show Carrie Russell very sweetly taking care of the son. That that does remind me of a couple things, though. One of the things that kind of bumped me and nothing against Ms. Russell, but she, to me, did not look like the mother of three children, two of which you have a terminal disease, and she's been caring for 24 hours a day for nine, eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. Nothing personal. She's, like, pretty. And I think that, that to me, she she <laughs> she looks very young, and she doesn't look haggard enough to, because to, I think he would, as you could say the same thing about Brendan Fraser. I think you would just, you would look horrible because, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, again, 24 hours a day. But I thought Russell did a fantastic job where a couple points, he kind of goes rogue and he does a thing without talking to her. And I thought she did a really good job of writing that line of you would be pissed, but you also like are committed you know, to him. So it wasn't like she was kicking him out on the lawn and throwing the clothes after him. But she managed to, to capture, I thought, that that almost contradiction of I love you and I hate you. 
Right. Mm -hmm. And so credit to Russell for that, even Mm -hmm. though, like we talked about it, this was a little bit after Felicity, but I I just, I wasn't sure she was the perfect cast for it, but I thought she did well anyway. Mm -hmm. I agree. He goes, he finally gets a hold of Dr. Bob Stonehill portrayed by Harrison Ford. And I, it was such a, another kick in the nuts line. The doctor basically says, go enjoy your children while you have them. Right. In essence, nothing we can do for you. Right. Even if I had all the money in the world, it would take years to come up with the, the, you know, an effective drug trials, you know, the research before that. And then the trials, it's like your kids are not going to basically live long enough. It was, it was rough. Yeah. Realistically. And I felt like if, if I didn't know that, this was based on a true story. I wouldn't actually have bought the timeline because in a year to get even to get a, a something from the whiteboard to a study is insane. I I just don't. I that's that's incredible. So at one point, Harrison Ford talks. His character, you know, yells about something like, "I I'm already working 24 hours a day," and they hire a bunch of young people because they're willing to work the hours and and. I felt like even with that, man, that's a compressed schedule for a brand new drug. But it, it it would have that schedule would have to work because of the kids' age, right? And I don't. I know they said that not only compiling all of the researchers into one, but they said uh, John Crowley. There's a handful of interviews with him, and he said they did. That's another thing that Hollywood kind of played with was the timing, because you just, you have audiences' attention for only so long, and so you couldn't really right kind of. So that is one thing that, that he said they compressed, but I don't know if what it, you know, was it four years was, you know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it would, you know, it would probably take a bit longer. I thought it was interesting storytelling that you had kind of the the Harrison Ford character was the loose cannon, but so was the the Brendan Fraser character was also like, we don't play by the rules. But then they came into conflict because like Stonehill didn't like it when Crowley didn't play by the rules. But that was like, look, you two chuckleheads are in this together because of that. And it did kind of remind me of another biotechnology firm where you had the one business guy and the one science guy. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is a common pattern. Yes, it reminded me of that as well. We got a little bit of like heightened action because the power goes out and there's a chance that they might lose all of the research. We're going to lose the shop. Um, (laughs) And so they have to run and get a generator and they turn it back on just in time. So just what every I mean, I think that's where the action film kind of was. Right. But it was I thought it was I mean, I I was along for the ride. I thought that was really fun screenwriting because you. I can't think of another time where we've had a got to get a generator from Home Depot <laughs> action. And it was tense. It was Lowe's. I don't. Oh, sorry. Lowe's. <laughs> I prefer Lowe's. But um, Lowe's, if you'd like a yeah. sponsorship, we're happy, <laughs> we're to. happy to. But I'm not quite sure that any one generator you buy at Lowe's could power an entire lab. All of those refrigerators. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's where uh, well, they they just they picked one refrigerator to power and they put all of the samples there. That's actually not, not a maybe they did. That <laughs> sounds smart. They're 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 science guys. They're smart. I thought that it was good writing that the two, while working together and definitely being after the same goal, 
were often at odds because at the same time that Bob, Dr. Stonehill, is trying to, you know, do accurate research and accurate testing and keep methods succinct and correct and all the things that you have to do when you're doing this kind of work, it was at odds with John trying to keep the company afloat financially. And, you know, they were kind of often fighting with one another. And at one point, Dr. Stonehill says something like the gravity of the situation. And Brendan says, Brendan says, don't talk to me about the gravity of this situation. Right. right. And I thought, oh, and I even said to you, like, he can pull that out at any point yeah, and just yeah, go, yeah, like, I trump your. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought that that kind of the tension between the creating and the paying for it was something that as filmmakers we really respond to that uh, you know stuff costs but then you're trying to do a thing and much like i would say filmmaking i very much feel like stonehill and probably a lot of scientists in this realm they know it works right and that was a recurring theme where stonehill said like i know my approach is the best and i think sometimes we sell scientists short by making them seem very robotic and very passive. Like, oh, we're going to do 8,000 experiments and find the one that works. We don't realize that it takes creative genius to think of, well, what experiment should I run? Like, how how could we fix this? Now let me prove my theory. Mm-hmm. That that coming up with the theory part is, I think, as creative as, as a lot of other activities. And we, we kind of don't really, I think, give them credit for that. So that was neat to see that character of Stonehill as a person who had a vision mm-hmm. instead of just being a nerd in a white lab coat. Right. But in a way, that's why those qualities is what makes a good researcher because they're not Totes. emotional. Like Brennan even gets kind of in trouble because he wants the researchers to understand the gravity of the situation. So he brings in a bunch of families and he kind of gets chastised by the venture capitalist saying, no, we need to take emotion out of this. This is business. This is science. And we we can't have the researchers doing this for any other reason than, you know, good, rigorous methods in yeah, there. I think that guy was wrong. I do think that it's good to connect it to the human part of it, because I think that that helps people who work on it be more motivated mm-hmm. to know that they're helping others. So both can can occur. I can yeah. be motivated, but also making sure that we're right. You know, we have good standards and stuff. But I thought that was actually fairly realistic that a large company would have a guy like that character who he has his job specifically because he focuses only he's the unemotional one. So it's like uh, there's a red subreddit. Am I the a-hole? And in some sense, they hired him to be the Mm a-hole in the group. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like they hired Stonehill to be creative and to come up with this idea. So there's that 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 tension that between them. But by the way, that actor, he looked familiar, but his father, I recognize his father's Richard Harris. And that he looks kind of like his father. So that's why he looked familiar to me, I think. Oh, wow. John Crowley, he's at his breaking point and he just he's just going to break in to the lab and steal the medication for the kids. And he gets caught and Stonehill kind of bails him out and they're having this serious heart to heart. And he says, you were right. I made the wrong decision. I should have just gone home to my kids and enjoyed them. And it's just this, it hurts because it's like, it's defeat and it's, you know, he 
maybe wasted time. And now his kids are going to die. And then Dr. Stonehill says, well, have you ever heard of a sibling study? And I almost wanted to scream, where were you six months ago? Why couldn't we do a sibling study then? Yeah, I think this is a little bit like Hollywood having the the how are we going to finish this? red LED cap down to one before you cut the wire. You just cut the wire right away, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I and I I do know that in real life Crowley had to leave his job to prevent the conflict of interest. I don't know if they had that kind of interaction, but I did. I did kind of like the dialogue of. Thank you for firing me. I never liked you. Likewise. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I, I don't know if Crowley really had a nemesis like that. Yeah. But that made for a kind of a, a fun scene. Right. And the thing is with these um, these drugs, they I, I think they can keep that person alive. But I would suspect that it would still be a tremendous amount of work because I think it just kind of keeps them static. Right. And they would still need help with the respiration and the different things. So that to me was there's a a part where one of the doctors says, like when they think early in the film, the kids are going to die, like it'll be a blessing. And and so that that is an interesting thing that we didn't go into in the film, which is nice because I don't think I could emotionally have handled that. But what is that tension between right? Because you're obviously happy that your child is alive, but you've now signed up for even more work. Mm hmm. And as humans, right, um, how are they going to pay for all of these day and night nurses and the, themselves, all the work? So this family is not out of the woods, mm-hmm. I guess, is kind of, it's not really a Hollywood ending. I mean, it's awesome that the kids won't die, but there's still a rough road ahead. Yeah, there's a scene in the making of that I'm going to include in the show notes. And you, there's a glimpse of the whole family on set and you see the two wheelchairs with Megan and Patrick in them. And so they're at the time, what did I say? This was 2010. They were still alive. Oh, well, good for them. So I think I know the answer, but any head trauma? No head trauma that I know of. (laughs) And did we get like a sweet Eileen John Crowley smoochie maybe? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. I did not notice one. Presumably there was an off-screen smoochie during the couch time, but uh, I, d- I didn't record one, a time code for not it. Not really that kind of film. Not exactly that kind of film. All right, but how about a driving review? Well, there was some driving in here. I want to open up with nice top speed on Megan's wheelchair. <laughs> yes. I kind of feel like maybe some guys from Hendrick Motorsports did a couple innovations on that on that wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was some good speed. A 1997 Ford Econoline is that mobility van. And I and I always, you know, whenever I see them, I think about that just amazing engineering that I bet goes in. But imagine to have two kids in that van. That sucker must have been pretty potent. So Harrison Ford's character Stonehill drives this green on green 73 Ford F100. And that, I think, really establishes as part of his character, it's like his, his costumes, that he doesn't get paid much. Right. And that pays off when later in the film they put him in in a brand new top of the line Ford pickup when he now has his own company, which, by the way, I think it would have been better if we had some Dodge pickups there. Just saying. Mm -hmm. Now, he leaves his uh, F-100 with the windows down when he moves to Seattle. And I feel like that's a self-correcting behavior. (laughs) Right. Right. 
But uh, also car casting, uh, when John goes to visit him in Nebraska, he drives this 2006 Kia Rio. And that shows that he is willing to suffer to save money, <laughs> right? Because that's a tiny little econo box. And mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser's a tall guy. Mm-hmm. And he's packed in there. So the, I, I thought that was good. Although I do believe from what I saw the photos that the real John Carly was not quite as tall as Brendan. No, so he, he probably not. fit a little bit better. And the Pontiac GTO convertible that he takes Megan for a ride in, that's a great celebratory vehicle. So he's obviously doing well. That's a good choice. My last little note, though, it makes for a really dramatic scene, and it's not a car, it's it's an aircraft, but I don't think you should land your helicopter that close to power lines. Go ahead, and, and I love Harrison Ford's line, what, you couldn't drive from the airport like a normal person? But, okay, okay, you want to save some time, you're going to get 120 miles an hour out of the Jet Ranger instead of 60 out of the Kia Rio, but you land it someplace safe. That looked, I mean, I'm sure it was fine for the stunt pilot but let's not do that kids well and harrison knows a lot about uh airline safety yeah and crashing yeah. aircraft yeah. yeah yeah harrison would know all right should we go to the numbers let's go to the numbers all righty so unfortunately for extraordinary measures it was not a box office hit the hmm. budget was 31 million and it brought in half of that worldwide oopsie domestically it even only made 12.5 so Sorry, Hollywood. We maybe because it was a little sad. Yeah, and I, I wonder. I mean, this is definitely years after Lorenzo's oil, and where people like, yeah, we know that story. <laughs> I mean, no disrespect to the Crowleys. I'm glad that they got their their yeah. happy ending. But yeah, totally. I just I wonder if audiences just really didn't want to sign up for this. So its IMDb score is six point four out of ten. Critics did not like this film at all. They gave it a 28%, so it is wholly rotten. Audiences actually liked it a little bit more, basically 53%, which is kind of, you know, half of their, their you know, earnings. It comes in just shy of or under two hours, so it's one hour, 46 minutes. It's rated PG, and it's listed as a drama. It's CBS Films. And I didn't see any awards, so... I forget the timing, but when was the whole Occupy Wall Street movement, time-wise? Well, 2008, yeah, I would bet it might be right around that, because 2008 is when everything crashed, and then... Right, so I wonder if maybe audiences didn't like the venture capital part of the film and the... The big drug company, maybe there is still a little corporate backlash? Ooh, that's very good theory, Michael. Good job. Yeah. So maybe one of the producers of this film could uh, shed some light on this. Go yeah. ahead and uh, contact us. We'll put you on the podcast. We can have a chat. The producer said why they wanted to make this movie is it was about a man. It was about a family who had hope, but not only just kind of relied on that hope, but but made it happen. Oh, and, yeah. I, I do like that. That message. Right. It's just, again, if I was telling that story, I would tell it a little different because it's hard for me, the sad parts. Yeah. We leave the sad parts out. Yeah. We like happy. I do. Very much do. Okay. That concludes this month of March. So I hope all of you listening have at least thrown in one guess what you think the theme is. There will be clues in our social media, which I will be better at getting out so that everybody has a chance. I'm going to try to put those out on Thursdays. So check out Dodge Media Productions. Let's see, we've got Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, our business. I think we'll show our social media with these clues. 
and look at the four movies, see what they have in common. You can guess as many times as you want. You can call us or text me or write me an email. All of that information is in the show notes. And never, ever, ever forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 